What, did, what were you saying about your Scottish shortbread? I've been in Scotland this week, hence being even shitter than usual on social media. I've been doing some hiking in the Highlands. Okai the new. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it was lovely. It was beautiful. And you're fueled on shortbread, were you? Did you? There's did no you other in... way other than shortbread and whiskey to fuel yourself in Scotland, Tom. Oh, it's a bit haggis. Literally all that's on the menu. Actually, do you know what? We I didn't have any haggis. I was going to because despite its description, it is delicious. It is bloody lovely. Every year when we were at university, every year in the run-up to Burns Night, that was the only time you could get haggis at the supermarket. So I used to stock up, <laughs> come home with bags full of the stuff. Oh, God. I mean, it, I remember this yeah. because they smell absolutely appalling when you cook them. Because you have to boil them, don't you? And they smell dreadful. I think you might be right, actually. You boil them in the, because it used to, traditionally, it was haggis in the stomach lining. Yes, well, it still is. Of, of an Englishman. And you boil <laughs> it in that. <laughs> still is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you buy SMP ones, <laughs> delicious. Hey Tom, do you reckon the uh, do you reckon the SMP have a special offer after Burns Night when they're trying to get rid of them, where you can buy one get one freedom? Eh, eh. Cue intro and music. That seg- <laughs> and that segues us nicely from last week's episode with <laughs> 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 bad jokes. Ah, oh, very nice. Cue music. Yes, uh, very good. Uh, what have we got this week then? Oh, we need to do the intro first. Hold on. Do the intro. Sorry, you do the intro. Hold hold your horses. Pull up your pants. <laughs> Down with your socks. Hang on. No, that's that's socks not... off. Pants up. That's not the way. We, that's not the way we do things down south. Hold your horses. Pants down. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to that was genius, the history podcast in which two friends on different sides of the world—that's me over here and Tom over there in New um, Zealand. Yeah. Hello. Discuss history topics on a theme each week. The topic is decided the week in advance, but everything else that happens is a surprise. It's unscripted. It's unfunny. (laughs) (laughs) Not to us. We enjoy it. As evidenced by last week. And and it's chaotic, as you can probably tell. And what is our topic this week, Tom? Heroic Frenchies. Badass Frenchies. Because we've been very mean to the French. We have been Over the course of about 50 episodes. (laughs) (laughs) But... Been particularly bad over the last three or four episodes. Le très mean. Yes, yes. Uh, Nasty or more. Um, oui. And <laughs> mais très oui. <laughs> and so we. I thought it was good that we just bring the world back into balance and we provide some examples of French people who who actually are pretty harder, hard ass. Yes. Badass, hard ass, fat ass. The works. <laughs> French ass. The, their ass can do anything. Le derrière tough. Derrière concrete. Mm. Oui. How have you found this week, Tom? Uh, good. Very good. Um, I must admit, rather busy week. You know, <laughs> trying to sell everything we have in New Zealand and arrange to move back to the UK. Uh, yes. But I, I've managed to produce some work, Sam. I have a piece <laughs> of paper with writing on it in and front the, of me. The writing says French. <laughs> <laughs> the Triple underlined. Says, Fuck me. This is... <laughs> I'm stuffed. Je suis stuffed. No, I, I've got some good content. I did find a kick-ass Frenchman. Good. I'm quite pleased with who I discovered. How about you? Yeah. You I, were torn, weren't you, I again? I was torn. Um, a little like... <laughs> Natalie Imbruglia. That's Natalie one. Imbruglia. Yeah, and whatever noise yeah. that was. That was the guitar solo. Oh, you, was you recognised that. Yes. I was torn. I'm, I'm sitting on the one that I... I'm not going to talk about the one that I'm not doing. You're sitting? I'm si- oh, who are you sitting on? <laughs> are you sitting on Charles de Gaulle? Who are you sitting on? <laughs> oh, is that who it is? 
I thought I could feel a moustache <laughs> twiddling the back of my neck, <laughs> tickling, tickling me gently, <laughs> tickling my nape. Um, anyway, I was torn between two. Both are cheating. One's actually not French, so I am going to save. <laughs> I'm going to save the one mm. which was more cheating, and I'm going to gently steer us towards next week doing something where I can make life very easy for myself and just regurgitate that story. But no, I've. I'm... Where where was the individual from then? She did grow up in France, but she was half British, half Indian, half American. So everywhere except France. Hold on. And also, she yes, was, she was one and a half people. I'm not... <laughs> she was all woman, Tom. And... Three arms and three legs. <laughs> yes. Three eyes. <laughs> uh, damn it! This is a history podcast, not a maths podcast. <laughs> She was a British citizen who was half Indian, half American. Well, but where, where does the French bit come in then? She grew up there. So a third French, third Indian, a third no. British and a third <laughs> yeah. Venezuelan. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Okay, right, got it, got it. Sorted. But I'm just doing a Frenchman instead. <laughs> well, actually, I'm doing, oh, fair enough. I'm doing a French expedition, actually. Okay, a French which, expedition. Which actually okay. isn't an example of a hard-ass Frenchman as such. It's just the French being relatively competent in the face of British mass incompetence. So what I've done is I have flipped it oh, around. Oh, yeah, okay. In yep. the sense that we usually do the British, Britain, the French, don't we, sir? Don't we, sir? But today we were flipping it around and I'm doing the French laughing at English childishness and stupidity. That's okay. That still contributes to us, you know, trying to... Redress the uh, balance. Bring... Exactly, exactly. That's that's good. I like that. It's le ying to le yang of our usual podcast. Yeah. Can I start us with a quote, Tom, this week? An amazing quote. So long as it's relevant. Yes. It is relevant. It's a quote. <laughs> <laughs> I had a dream. <laughs> yes. <laughs> According oh, to okay. Abraham Lincoln, Bye. anything's a dildo if you're brave enough. Right. <laughs> so this is a quote about dry January. Why well, had such a tall hat full of them. And <laughs> yeah. such a big beard. Store a few extras in there. He was basically just a giant dildo smuggler, Abraham Lincoln, wasn't he? <laughs> big cock smuggler. Wow. <laughs> it's, what was, it's what he was known to his friends. He was known as Abraham Cock Smuggler. If you shook him... All of them flew out. His hat would fall off and knobs <laughs> yeah. everywhere. If he spun around too fast, it was like a Catherine <laughs> wheel of dicks. As opposed to a rigid world of Catherines. Um, yeah. There's a man with a beard so bushy you could store a Russian empress in it. <laughs> Where are we going? <laughs> right. I have a quote, Tom. It's a quote about dry January from a French chef. Okay. So this is a quote in the Times newspaper in the UK from Gérard Idieu, chef at the acclaimed Le Recamier restaurant in Paris, who's among a host of French celebrities who signed a letter condemning dry January as an affront to French culture. Obviously, the French are very big on their culture. And quote from this chef, These days we are not allowed to drink, to smoke, or even to have a mistress. <laughs> It is prohibition, prohibition, prohibition. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a, a wonderfully French quote. Excellent. Well, I mean, you can have your lung cancer, broken families, and um, alcoholism if you really like. Ah, yeah. Thank you. Egalité, <laughs> fraternité, <laughs> liberté. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Right, should we find something to flip? Something French, something, something blue, something naughty, something loo. Um, what have we got? We always flip CDs, but I've got a CD to flip. I've got some steak. Oh, I wish I had a sausage on. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? But they're oh. all stuffed in Abraham. All stuffed up Abraham Lincoln's <laughs> sleeves. <laughs> 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 
What else can we find? If Abraham Lincoln salutes extra hard, one goes right in his ear. <laughs> well, I think we're gonna have to do. We're gonna have to do the album, Tom. I'm sorry. You're gonna have to do the album. This is getting is very air album. Oh, I have an air album. This well, the one I've got in my hand is actually Saint Etienne. Right. Do you Ooh, want the sexy boy? That, that's still air. Would you like? Ugh. Do you remember we did a video to Sexy that, didn't we? Boy. When we were drunk at oh, university yes, once. <laughs> well, you've said it. I've got it on my laptop. That's going on social um, media. <laughs> boom. We've also got our wonderful hats routine. We do have our wonderful hats routine. I mean, in fairness, both of those videos are very French. They are quite I French, mean, aren't they? They're very art house. Yeah, they could win wards at Cairns. They could really... Yeah, they definitely could. So this this video is Tom and I very... I, I think relatively drunk. Well, I'm certainly drunk. I don't think you are because you didn't really drink at university. No, it's just stupid. <laughs> just being stupid. Yeah. Just dancing around in front of your webcam to Air's Sexy Boy with uh, yeah. with two helmets strapped under my T-shirt. <laughs> Doing a strip tease. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And I, whew, I know people are getting hot under the collar right now. Ooh, me and included. the prospect of that. Me included. Yeah. Ooh. Let's flip the CD. Do you want the track listing or the, do you want the front or the back of the CD? Let's let's get this over oh, with. We need to get moving. Front. Front. Done. Yes, chef. There we go. Smash. Uh, it's the front, Tom. You win. Right, I'm going to go first before I um, run out and forget, forget, what I, <laughs> forget what I wrote down. Okay. <laughs> There's only one word, uh, right, Tom. <laughs> yeah, shit. Uh, righty tighty tight. I started this week's research by looking into French awards. We started and this week's research about half an hour ago. <laughs> I did. And we're 20 minutes into yes. a recording. <laughs> yes, that's true. I went down this route because of the episode where I discussed Gunnar Stutzdebi, the oh, Norwegian, yes. the most decorated Norwegian soldier. So I thought I'd do something equivalent Literally to the French. Literally covered in wallpaper. Oh. <laughs> Stenciled to death. <laughs> from this, so from this, from looking and researching into medals and highly decorated individuals, I narrowed it down to a few very highly decorated Frenchmen with very colourful histories, and then I narrowed it even further down to this chap. Now, to start with, before I tell you who it is, here are a few of my favourite French orders, medals, and decorations that I encountered in my research. Oh, lovely! I think I might come across some of these. Go on. Oh, excellent! Good number. Here's the first one that I thought was quite interesting: the Order of Academic Palms, eighteen oh eight, under Napoleon. And I couldn't quite work out why you distinguish the palm from the rest of the hand. You know, quite. Weird. <laughs> really stupid fingers. <laughs> I know. I'm a thumb. So yeah, yeah, the Order of Academic Palms. Here's a really exciting one. This is the one that everyone wants to get. This is the big daddy. Honour Medal for Penitentiary Administration. Boom. Charles de Gaulle did a sabbatical as a prison officer just to get that one. Yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? Best of the bunch. Famously not awarded to the guards at the Bastille. They were kicking themselves, Tom. Kicking themselves. Clever clever history joke. That's a good (laughs) So I wouldn't call it a clever history joke. <laughs> Bit of a rarity, that. Um, <laughs> um, save that one, listeners. Um, <laughs> a snapshot. That's going in the Christmas special. <laughs> Here's another one. Here's the insignia for wounded civilians. Ah. That must have been on the uh, production line for a long so, time. So what insignia Could... do you get for being a wounded civilian? Do you just put le- a cr- ouch a at crotch. the end of your name? <laughs> a crotch. A crotch. A crotch. A crotch. Just you get to doodle a dick a next to your name. <laughs> I meant to say crutch, but okay, my rock. Doodle a dick by your name. That's good. That sounds a bit ridiculous to me because here's some statistics. World War One, 
about 1.7 million French people died, and I think 1.4 of those are military deaths. Although it's you get One, different figures 1. from different military um, sources. Deaths. 1.4 million military deaths. Yes, I got about, that. I'm just, I'm just uh, being a twat. Three million. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I, yes. Other countries, other countries are closer to that figure. In World War Two, the French did a lot better. Well, Switzerland um, actually. <laughs> Switzerland in the Second World War had one person die, according to the records. And one forget- person. I forget which war it was, but there was a war in which Liechtenstein got involved and they came back with one more person than they left with because no one died and they made an Italian friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need to Google. I'm going to need to Google. That's a good one. That can be one of your midweek videos. That's a good one. So yeah, World War II, the French had around 267,000 civilian deaths. Deaths? De- deaths? Fuck me. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, les shells, they are so loud. Oz is German. Music is very... This is pumping techno from across the Siegfried line. What is... I'm sorry, what am I doing German? Oz is David Hasselhoff music. It is blowing my ears away. Get in the car. Get in the car. I cannot put up with it anymore. What is this? Well, la di the Germans, with your working cars... Your functional engineering. Deaths, is what I meant to say. They had 267,000 civilian deaths in World War II and uh, 218,000 military deaths. So they didn't actually, not a lot of French people, well, it's all relative, but um, they didn't lose a huge amount of lives in the Second World War, the oh. French. Certainly not compared to the First World War. I was amazed at those figures. And certainly not compared to some other countries in the Second World War. I'm going to put it out there that it is uh, very difficult to run away from a trench. <laughs> in the Second World War, there were no trenches. It was very easy to retreat. <laughs> Sorry, not allowed. Not in the spirit of this episode. <laughs> no, not this episode. Not this Stop time. It. Not this time. No, but don't worry. We're going to bully some other country. I'm coming on to that. Oh, thank fuck. Um, cha- <laughs> I didn't realise China lost 15 million people during the Second World War. Oh, yeah. God, yes. China had a very, very, very bad, very bad time. <laughs> Awful, awfully dreadful. We've... <laughs> Last against against Japan and latterly a little bit Soviet Russia, Germany eight million. You'd expect that. I mean, they did start it, didn't they? Really, and they did. Switzerland a hundred. So um, more than you'd think. Bear in mind, they're a bunch of gold hoarding cowards. <laughs> yes, I was going to say gold store, <laughs> gold storing <laughs> monkeys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It kind of highlights the the ferociousness of the Swiss Army penknife, doesn't it? And the it uh, the value of precision timekeeping. So yeah, the Swiss only lost a hundred people. And nobody likes clog-wearing, muesli, enjoying mountain yodeling, yellow-bellied Toblerone masticators. <laughs> so I'm very much targeting the Swiss this, this episode. <laughs> You're not allowed to do the French, so you've gone just across the border. <laughs> Cowards. Anyway, uh, there's also the honour <laughs> the honor medal for indirect taxation that I came <laughs> wow, across. Oh, wow. <laughs> I don't quite get this one. Looks like sneaky ways to tax people, presumably. Why is my brie square? I'm afraid we're taxing round cheese containers now, so we've just adapted it and we're delivering them all in square containers. Yeah. Why is my baguette eight eight feet long? <laughs> we tax by the loof. Now, an eight-foot baguette a Frenchman would get down with. Squaring off his brie, though, they're going to get the guillotine back out. You square our cheese, we'll square your head. Right, farmers, get in your tractors and blockade the roads. Yes, we will drive <laughs> very slowly. <laughs> Uh, there's the Medal of Mimes. Mimes? Mime. Yeah, mimes. Is, that, is that an award you just pretend to get given? <laughs> exactly. You ooh, put it over your head. 
Look at this. Oh, look at my medal. No, the mines. So right. presumably it's like a dig your own medal situation. You know, like pick your own blueberries. It's like that. Um, <laughs> the honor medal for you work. Know blueberries don't get mined. <laughs> so blueberry. No, but you can pick your own blueberries, can't you? From the you can blueberry bush. Honor medal for work. Well, it um, is quite unusual. A Spaniard has never won that up. one. Yes, <laughs> yes. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. Let's try that again. You go first. No, no, no. Let's. The interruption was more pure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, surprisingly, the Spaniard has never won that award. Um, so that was the honor medal for work. <laughs> it's another good one. Order. This is a very old one. This is from twelve thirty four. Order of the broom cod. Wow. Presumably a fish that enjoyed sweeping. Yes. There's Order of the Porcupine from 1394. Now, I've heard of this one. No hedgehogs allowed. What does the porcupine get you? I forget what the, what the porcupine's for. Um, it's, it's something to do with the fact that they face terror by pointing their prickles at it. It's a, it's a little bit like kids in the playground, let's be honest. A lot of these medieval orders. It's like, oh, do you want to join my gang? Yeah, do you want to join my... What should we call ourselves? Oh, we'll call ourselves the porcupines because we point ourselves at danger. <laughs> because we roll up into a ball to protect ourselves in the face of strife. <laughs> we get run over easily. Order of the Hop was another good one for 1406. For brewing? Yeah, it was actually brewing related. Order of the Hop. Yeah, not the hip. Not the hippie dibby dibby da don't stop. No, exactly. Not for the bang bang um, boogie was, up yeah, jumps. <laughs> For the boogity boogity beat. Right, on to my main topic. So, the highly decorated French war hero mm. that I'm going to talk about is a chap called Marceau Bigeard. Not big ears, or I big should point beard. out. Although he does have rather large ears, a little bit like a Ryder Cup. And he didn't have a mate called Noddy. So, <laughs> it was actually Bigeard. And he was, his nickname was Bruno. Marcel Bruno Bigeard. Uh, have you heard of this chap? No, I haven't. Marcel Bruno. Marcel Bruno Bigard. 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 Various ways of pronouncing it, depending on whereabouts in France you are. <laughs> yes, and you are a long way from France. <laughs> <laughs> Monsieur Bigiers started his military career in 1936 as a regular soldier and finished it in 1976 as a lieutenant general, which is quite. Oh, that's unique quite, the, because quite he, a jump. Absolutely. Quite a jump. It, he went through a lot. And um, just for people who aren't familiar with uh, Lieutenant General, it translates from French into Lieutenant General, if you're an Superb. English speaker. <laughs> at the, no, thank you. Um, at the start of the Second World War, he was stationed along the Maginot Line. Uh, the, the Nazis creatively just, marched, yes. marched around. He was just sat there <laughs> waiting to do something heroic. <laughs> we are waiting to shoot at our shit. Now uh, we forgot to build it through Belgium. Um, so they are just going to walk through Belgium. Okay. It's not so much that you forget to build it through Belgium. You'd have to ask permission from the Belgians to build a French military line through there. I mean, asking Belgium for permission is not really the European way. But <laughs> nevertheless, in the spirit of friendship. <laughs> oh, they should have been a bit more pressing, shouldn't they? I mean, what's the point? What's the point in having a big, and what by all accounts is a very, very well-designed line of defences if you could just walk around the north of them. Bloody yes. ridiculous. <laughs> anyway, he ended up in prison, a uh, prison of war camp for about 18 months after that because he got captured when he was on the Maginot Line, but did manage to escape all the way to Senegal, of all places. 
which was um, a French territory. So he, got, he managed to get his way to Senegal. Um, he fought in Africa for a while and then ended up with the Free French Forces, the FFF, which was, for people who don't know, essentially a government in exile during the Second World War, led by the very famous Charles de Gaulle, who we've mentioned a few times already. And towards the end of the war, he was parachuted into France and led numerous missions that led to him receiving the British uh, a British award for gallantry. So he had all sorts of awards. Oh, but did he have the one for mining? No, uh, exactly. Or, the, or he never worked at prison either, no. as far as I'm aware. So yeah, he didn't have the full collection. You get disqualified for that one, having been a prisoner. Well, not if you're French. <laughs> I think there were medals for prisoners for successfully getting through being in prison. Anyway, <laughs> here's a quote: "I do not accept the medals anymore because they are starting to fall on my shoes." That's what he said in, when interviewed in Later Life. <laughs> so he was very, very, very well done. It is not because I have many of them, it is because my jacket is horribly oversized. <laughs> <laughs> I am like a small boy wearing his granddad's overcoat. Because this guy had very long arms. I have to have a very oversized jacket to keep my arms warm. Unfortunately, the downside is it looks like a skirt. <laughs> After the war, now this is where it starts to get a bit juicy, Big Ears spent time in Indochina, where France was trying to reassert its dominance over its colonies in what turned out to be the first Indochina War, which ran from 1946 to 1954, and obviously was a precursor to the Vietnam War. Yes. Because the French were fighting the Viet Minh. This is where the story of Big Ears really takes off. And yes, I am calling him Big Ears, because it's funny. (laughs) Because you can't pronounce his actual name. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I, as I've proved, I can pronounce it in many different dialects. <laughs> in 1952, he led his parachute battalion on an operation which ended up with them being surrounded by Vietnamese troops, outnumbered about 10 to 1, and he managed to break out of the encirclement and lead his men and the wounded back to a French base over, I think I read it was a four-day hike through the jungle. Wow. So here we start to start to develop the legend of Big Ears. He was famous for his devotion to his physical fitness. He was one of the fittest soldiers in the whole French army, it was claimed. He also had an incredible willingness to do everything expected of his regular troops. So he was he got down and dirty with his regular troops, and he was very critical of other senior military figures who sort of sat around, got fat, and uh, let all the young lads do all the hard work. He was notorious as well for putting his soldiers through their paces and making sure they were in great shape and he would cut back on their rations. He would, wouldn't allow them to drink wine, didn't allow them to go and spend too long in whorehouses. What kind of Frenchman is this? <laughs> well, this chef you mentioned earlier would have been very unhappy. Indeed. Is he secretly an American hiding as a Frenchman? Exactly. I think he had been touched by the Viet Minh. I think he was a spy. He was very, very tight with those sort of things. Physical fitness and discipline is very tight on his people. Here's a quote. It is possible. It will be done. And if it is impossible, it will still be done. Very determined chap with big ears. Uh, Despite a heroic last stand at the Battle of Dien Bien Phu, which uh, one historian likened to the Spartans at Thermopylae, the famous 300, this battle at the end of the First Indochina War, big ears, I think he had 800 men under his command and only about 40 of them survived because they fought ferociously to the end taking heaps of Jesus. Vietnamese lives that sounds pretty bad yeah no it's not it wasn't great for them but I think it was far worse for the attacking Viet Minh it usually was <laughs> he was captured at this battle eventually and was made a prisoner of war but his physical fitness stood him in really good stead when the Vietnamese 
Death marched the surviving French forces to a prisoner of war camp, and around 4,000 of the 10,000 French captured survived this. About 6,000 French um, soldiers died in this death march. Jeez. And he was released four months later because, yeah, this was very close to the end of the First Indochina War. 1956, Big Ears' next adventure uh, was in Algeria, where he found himself fighting the Algerian National Liberation Front, who wanted Algerian independence. And very early on at this time in Algeria... He's been involved in all of the slightly dubious colonial wars, hasn't he? Yeah, you say dubious. Yeah, you've obviously heard about this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Have you heard of French conduct in Algeria? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Yes, slightly familiar with it, yes. And early on, Big Ears survived three bullets to the chest, one during a small battle, a skirmish, and two as part of an assassination attempt while he was jogging along a beach, I think I read. Wow. And he survived them and carried on. So he's an incredibly fit guy that just seemed to bounce off anything that was thrown his way. And yes, the Algerian war was brutal, with both sides responsible for a lot of atrocities. So the FLN, that was the um, Algerian National Liberation Front, basically adopted terror tactics and bombed public places, loosely targeting French Algerians, particularly Muslim Mm. French Algerians. And often it was a pretty young Algerian girl would walk into a public place, put a bomb in a bin and then run off and it would explode. These FLN terrorists for want of a better word, were particularly fond of killing people with what was called the Algerian smile, which was where they'd cut the throat of their victims, rip out their tongues and just leave them to bleed on the streets. Oh, Jesus. So the FLN weren't particularly nice, but the French and Big Ears was a prominent figure in this, were equally as brutal. They basically decided to meet brutality with brutality, and it actually did work in, in, in a sense. Curfews, for example, were put in place um, in various areas with violent enforcement, so people would be shot and left to rot in the streets if they broke the curfew, and that was just a sign to the people that it was the French that were in charge, and the French were going to be worse than the FLN, which was an interesting (laughs) tactic to win hearts and minds. And torture was also prevalent, so the French um, liked to electrocute suspects' genitals. That was a popular thing for them to do, um, to get information. Thousands of native Algerians went missing, and it's rumoured that actually Big Ears himself ordered them to be dropped from planes into the ocean to drown. So thousands of Algerians went, went missing. Weirdly, though, when one of the FLN leaders was captured, Begird ensured that he was treated with huge respect. I think he gave him a bit of a military send-off when he was sort of handed over to another senior French official's custody. <laughs> they gave him a nice salute as they threw him out of the aircraft. <laughs> when uh, when we threw him out of the plane, we got the trumpet out, we gave him a little... With the auto parachutists, we pinned it to his chest and pushed him out. <laughs> as a very generous gesture, we threw out a... A rubber swan with him <laughs> that he could, uh, you know, take down with him. No, he was ridiculously pleasant to this this leader of the FLN and sat down, had a drink with him, um, refused to have him treated badly in any way. Uh, but another French leader eventually got custody of this Algerian leader and I think uh, had him hung and made to look like a suicide. Jeffrey? <laughs> What's that? A little Epstein joke. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Sorry. I've missed it completely. On the whole, the French tactics in Algeria in terms of taking control and and, uh, controlling the revolt, the independence movement, were very successful. However, the flip side of that was they were very unpopular back home in France because there were rumours of the brutality and uh, the French people weren't too happy about it. Anyway, it didn't take long for the Algerians to be given their independence by the French. And then obviously there was no use for old big ears. No. Through the 60s and 70s, he was stationed in various places and he continued to demonstrate his idiosyncrasies that made him so popular with his men. For example, he was almost drowned and eaten by sharks simultaneously when he parachuted 
in to meet some of his new men under his command and was blown into the Indian Ocean because he was actually aiming to land in Madagascar. Um, broken arm as well, I think. And that's where they got the idea for Algeria from, from the sounds of it. Yes, quite possibly. Yeah, yeah. just don't give him a parachute. He went on to work in politics, his reputation rather confused. On the one hand, an incredibly strong, resilient, successful military leader, and the other, someone willing to condone torture. And um, this legacy lived with him right up to his death. Um, he was quite heavily criticised for his role in the torture in Algeria. And he died in 2010, full, uh, buried with full military honours at the age of 94. There you have it. Oh, wow. So that is the story of Marcel Big Ears. Fair enough. I mean, he fits the brief, doesn't he? He's a badass Frenchman, one way, or, one way or another. Absolutely. Those who have written biographies about this chap say he was an incredible commander, absolutely incredible military commander. And it's probably that ruthlessness that probably didn't make him so good when trying to win hearts and minds in Algeria. <laughs> but yes, and interestingly as well, he's often used, and I didn't realise this until the end of my research, he's often used as an example to counter the French stereotype of retreating when under attack. It's all a bit of light banter, isn't it? It is, until some Algerians die. Yes, that's not such light banter. <laughs> but, you know, two sides to every story, they were they were bombing innocent people in the streets. So, Well, yeah, it's very true. Very true. Not that that should allow torture, but there you go. Two wrongs don't make a right. No. They make a droite. That's right in French. Yeah, no, I, I knew a droite. I was trying to remember what left is. Gouche. A gauche, a droite. A gauche. You're quite good at French, aren't you? No, I'm not. I'm You're quite good. You've got French. my soggy biscuit. I did get yes, but you understood I soggy bicket very quickly. Very well, quickly. I've got I've got a very limited vocabulary, Tom. It's only the things I've needed to use over the years that I remember. <laughs> <laughs> One baguette and a soggy biscuit, please. <laughs> well, that's very interesting, Tom. Well done. You found a badass Frenchman. I didn't. Amongst yes, amongst. <laughs> I was disappointed I didn't find a real badass guy who had a medal for penitentiary administration. But hey, you know, there's only <laughs> so much time I've got to research. Or yes. someone from the Order of the Broomcod. Yes, well, we'll we'll look that up. <laughs> we'll see if we can find an impressive broomcod. Yes, Tom, I've not got one badass Frenchman today. I've got a whole badass French expedition, which was also actually quite possibly a badass and really quite obvious French espionage mission with a view to invading Australia. Wow. Did you know that the French nearly invaded Australia, Tom? When was this? Well, steady, steady now. Not. Steady now. I'm one sentence in. All and details will come. Just cool your boots. Oh, <laughs> don't ask me rhetorical questions then. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. <laughs> oh well, well. Did they, they find any boomerangs? They didn't have a car for a start because it was in 1800. Ah. <laughs> and this is this is a funny story. Not so much because the French were particularly good or bad, but because the British were so utterly useless. <laughs> yep. It's called the Baudin Expedition and it sailed from 1800 to 1803. Now, in March 1800, Napoleon, you know, averagely sized man from uh, Sardinia, as opposed to an averagely as, a, as, a, as opposed to an averagely sized sardine <laughs> sorry, from Corsica. Yeah, Corsica, not Sardinia, sorry, Corsica. Yep was approached by a gang from the French National Society of... S- I don't know. Averagely sized Corsican. Carry on. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Was, was approached by a gang from um. the French National Society of Science and the Arts, which, as a society name, is a bit of a catch-all. <laughs> Just the society for bloody everything. Yeah, it is really, isn't it? These men were led by an experienced sea trader and explorer called Nicolas Bardin. And they wanted permission and funding to go and explore and map the coast of New Holland, which is what we would now call Australia. 
and they were going to explore it and bring back lots of exciting specimens and fun things. Uh, presumably, being Frenchmen, these were things to put in your mouth or up your bottom. <laughs> oh, boomerang. <laughs> oh, yeah, well. <laughs> oh, yeah, what you want, mate? You want a boomerang? You can get right round the U bend with one of those, <laughs> I tell you. What we call that? Right round. <laughs> Or a boomerang, or is it known? No, what if it gets sucked up there? It comes straight back out again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Or is it known to the Americans, the double-ended Lincoln? <laughs> yeah. Oh, the twelve-inch Abraham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The stovepipe hat. So Bourdain was given permission to sail and left France in October with two ships, fittingly named Geographie and Naturaliste. Uh, that's not to be confused with the good ship Naturist, <laughs> famed for its unusually large mast and hairy deck. <laughs> Knew where that was going straight away. Yeah, you did. I just imagined all, all, all the soldiers lining up at port set and, and being told which boat they're going to go on. Yeah, right. You there, you are going on the Naturist, take off your clothes. Yes. You, you are going on Geography. You, Naturist, take off your clothes. You, Geography. <laughs> you can keep your clothes on. Um, everyone on the Naturist has to go in the nip. Tigers out. It is very cold out. You may want to smear some kind of goose fat all over your tallywacker. Uh, we almost... We, right, uh, when we first moved out to New Zealand, um, a group of friends, myself included, yes, I do have friends, well, I did, I did have friends, (laughs) I was quite pleased with myself when I first arrived in New Zealand. That didn't last. We um, all arranged to go, no, I didn't last, Um, wankers, we arranged to go up about five hours north of Christchurch for a big cycling event. It's a very popular cycling cycling event in Blenheim. All the hotels and B&Bs and things had all been uh, booked out, so one of the members of our party booked somewhere and she was delighted she sent a message out to everyone saying oh i've booked this place it looks really really good and i researched it just to see where it was and it was actually a naturist's colony (laughs) (laughs) so so we then what ensued was a debate as to whether or not we should go (laughs) you went didn't you 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 went (laughs) (laughs) i was game (laughs) yeah you took your clothes off as soon as you googled it (laughs) (laughs) yeah I, I rode the event naked. I was on my bike in the nip. Oh, dear. That's some chafing. Any, anyway, <laughs> so after six months at sea <laughs> and a voyage in which everyone got very ill and they ran out of food, which is, frankly, nothing particularly unusual when it comes to 19th century no. naval exploration. Particularly around Australia. Yes, they, they very quickly ran out of frog's legs and got a bit sad. Uh, but by all counts, the exploration actually all went very well. The bullfrogs hadn't arrived yet, had they? They didn't have any of the bloody bullfrogs no, well, in Australia. If they had been there before, and the Frenchies would have been delighted. There was literally no food anywhere. <laughs> I cannot eat this. It is a vegetable. What am I supposed to do with this? All we have is cows. What do we do with fucking cows? <laughs> and lots of these very bouncy things. They are bouncing around, punching each other. Very difficult to Boing. eat. <laughs> Boing. And because they seem to be fighting, we don't really want to get involved. (laughs) Have you seen kangaroo fights? Yeah, they're brutal. Absolutely. Just don't... Wombat baiting, a little bit more boring. Yeah, koala caging as well. Not much fun. (laughs) So anyway, by all counts, the exploration actually went very well. Because unlike British explorers that we've talked about before, Tom, the French took these things seriously. 
They didn't bring a chest of drawers or a rum distillery. <laughs> they didn't bring 500 camels and a school choir. They, <laughs> they just bought lots of scientists and were led by a very competent and very experienced captain. Which, frankly, is just shit, isn't it? I mean, this Sounds ju- boring to me. This just isn't on yeah. top. Firstly, you pack light, Where then you put someone competent in charge. Then, then, Tom, not only that, they treated the natives with respect. What? They got on well with them and traded food with them. What are they thinking about? Learning about their culture. What the fuck is this? Only the French would do that. What kind of empire yeah, are exa- you? Well, exactly. That's I why know. the British Empire was bigger. Yeah, damn straight. Treated people how they deserve to be treated. Yes. Absolutely. What is this? Anyway, by the end of 1802, the expedition finally reached Port Jackson, which is modern day Sydney. And at this point, Britain and France were at peace. So the British slash Australians were very happy to have the company of some fellow European gentlemen to make up for the transported Cockneys and Irishmen they normally had to deal with company. So having completed a successful voyage, the naturalist was sent home packed with... They've had a really good voyage. Nudes. (laughs) <laughs> Packed to the rafters with naked people Cocks on deck, just nothing but butt todgers Butt cheek to butt cheek <laughs> Just a hold full of genitals As the people at home will love these genitals <laughs> Imagine them arriving at port With a welcome party Waving them in Hello, bonjour, hello It is a, it is a naturalist boat We are all arriving <laughs> But naked. No, that was the naturist, Tom. That was the naturist. We have gone oh, back. Which one got sent back? Sorry, the naturalist got sent back, not the naturist. The naturist didn't exist. It was oh, a joke. Sorry, shit. Okay. <laughs> Arriving at port. No, it did exist. Come all on. the ladies of the town came out to wave in the sailors, who flirted with them by throwing cocks overboard. <laughs> Anyway, yes, the naturalist was sent home packed with two and a half thousand new species and plenty of future food for besieged Parisians in the form of emus and black swans as a specific gift for Napoleon's Josephine. Another reference to an old episode. Meanwhile, the British got on so well with the French, they even sold them a replacement ship. So far, this all sounds very boring, doesn't it? I've been forced to make a dick joke and a derogatory comment about the French putting things up their bottoms just to keep it interesting. But wait, Tom, because there's two aspects to this story. Which it worked. Which, it worked. I, I, thanks. There's two aspects to this story which are much more fun. The first is a lovely bit of British incompetence, and the second is the real reason behind the expedition. So let's do the British incompetence Ooh. first. In 18- There's a twist, is there? There's, there's a twist. In 1801, knowing that the French would have their beady little frog eyes on his big old Isle Aru, the governor of Australia, a guy called Philip Gidley King, sent out his chief surveyor. Fit, or what was his name? Philip Gidley King. Philip Gidley King. <laughs> Good Australian name. Philip Gidley King. Hi, good day, mate. I'm Philip Gidley King. Pleasure to meet From you, Bruce. Wonga. <laughs> well, quite. <laughs> Philip Gidley King. And Philip Gidley King sent out his official chief surveyor to explore and claim as much of South Australia as he could for king and country. Now, the chief surveyor... Harry Fogley Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, he's got he's got a reasonable Australian name as well. Larry Wiggly Woo. <laughs> yes. What was his name? Jimmy Knifey Spoonie. <laughs> the chief surveyor was a 19-year-old guy called Charles Grimes. Charles Grimes. Grimes by name, Grimes by nature. Absolutely. Don't like to wash. <laughs> yeah. Very, very unclean man. Terrible halitosis. Very oily texture to his skin. <laughs> yes. Yes. So... 
Australia was somewhat short of people at this point, so the chief surveyor for Sydney was a 19-year-old. On that basis, the deputy chief surveyor and assistant surveyors were probably just about old enough to draw a tree and colour in the lines of the map. (laughs) (laughs) So he was off exploring and, uh, and putting up flags and being very British and claiming things for Britain. Anyway, when the French rolled up in Sydney... Governor King and Baudin had a whale of a time. They got on like a house on fire. So much so that Baudin had been allowed to stay for five months and obviously buy this ship. King being absolutely positively sure that it was only going to be used for science and definitely not for invading or colonising. Right? Because he liked him. He liked Baudin. He's nice. He seems like a gentleman. So whilst all of this was going on and those two were having a whale of a time, a drunk French officer had let slip over wine one night to his British counterparts that they wanted to start a settlement, a little village, a ville, if you like, in Van Diemen's Land, which mm. is what's now known as Tasmania, a place the British hadn't yet claimed. Oh. So when news of this reached Ooh. Governor King, he panicked, Tom. He panicked and decided that no matter how nice this particular Frenchman was, he didn't want him as a neighbour. Sorry, I should do that in Australia accent, shouldn't I? I like you, mate. I like you, but I don't want any dirty foreigners next door driving down house prices. Nice, like what you did there. Unfortunately, if Australia was already short of map makers and flag planters, it was really short of sailors and colonisers. Australia, Tom, had at this point one ship. <laughs> they had had two ships, but just sold they just one to the French. They just fucking sold it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the one ship they had left was called the Cumberland. It was the first ship, seagoing ship that Australia had ever built. The Cumberland. <laughs> Which is also uh, one of Abraham Lincoln's favourite accessories. <laughs> it's so English here. Yeah? I think we we should name the boat after our favourite sausage. Yes. And the Cumberland. Yes. What should we name the other boat? We've only got two. Yes. Hmm, I don't know. Um, well, Tom, the problem with the what's Cumberland... What's another famous type of sausage? The Lincolnshire. <laughs> Lincolnshire, Lincolnshire. They're two good sausages. Our Very good ship, sausages. The pork banger was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, mash. Yes, Re- renamed by the French the Naturist. <laughs> the ship Cumberland was tiny. Australia had started small. It was just forty feet long and weighed thirty tons. A, a really small ship, about the no, size of a. Australia a yacht. was bigger than that. Australia was definitely bigger than that. At least sixty <laughs> feet long. It was a, a wee bit bigger. Um, it hasn't. Australia hasn't grown that big in the last two hundred years. <laughs> oh, they grow up so fast, don't they? It was a tiny ship, just forty feet long and thirty tons, and it didn't really have a crew. So was given over to be captained by a twenty-one-year-old midshipman called Charles Robbins. Now, for reference, and if you haven't watched Hornblower or Master and Commander. A midshipman is the lowest ranking officer in the Royal Navy. It's a rank you could achieve at 12 years old, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Australia yeah. was seriously short of crew. <laughs> it was essentially like Neverland. It was a colony entirely run by prisoners, pirates and children. <laughs> and yet Robbins, at the age of 21 and fresh out of the Naval College, was promoted to acting lieutenant commander and given this little ship, along with 16 crew, including Grimes, the surveyor, a handful of Royal Marines and a gardener, (laughs) presumably to plant a little raised bed around the flag, and told to bugger off and not come back until he'd gone and claimed Tasmania from under the noses of the French. Right. Sure enough, in 1802, this little ship rocked up at Sea Elephant Bay on what's now known as King Island to find those dastardly Frenchies already there. Uh, The British panicked, 
Robbins dashed ashore with a few of his crew, pulled out a letter from Governor King to Boudin saying, this wasn't a very nice thing of you to do to a friend, whipped out a Union Jack and tied it to a tree before the French had managed to get out a sacre bleu. Now, the Union Jack... Boom. Boom. Done. Claimed for Britain. Now, the Union Jack was quite a new flag at this point and Robbins was quite a new sailor. So he made a total hash of this ceremony. Firstly, he put the flag on upside down, much to the amusement of the French. Secondly, he hadn't been storing it properly, and Boudin later commented that it looked like the crew had been using it to strain soup. (laughs) It was absolutely filthy and really crinkled. (laughs) Thirdly, he hadn't really brought a script with him to claim the land properly and wasn't much of a public speaker, being a sailor at 21 years old. So he just mumbled some words about naming it King Island on behalf of Governor King and Further King. No, hang on. I, I I named this island King Island for the king and also Mr. King and this is his island that's the king's island not Mr. King's island but I've named it after him because he's very nice and he told me to do it it's a very nice island and I'm sure Mr. King and the king will be very pleased terribly sorry I've actually accidentally just I thought it was a flag, but it's actually my dirty washing. <laughs> yes. Oh, God. Go, Rebecca, is it, go get the proper flag, not hang my on, underwear. Hang on a second. This isn't the Union Jack. This is Surveyor Charles Grimes' unwashed Union Jack boxer shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I won't make a wet dream joke. Carry on. <laughs> I thought I knew that was where you were going to go. <laughs> Even more embarrassingly than not having written the script and putting the flag on upside down, He ordered the three marines to fire a ceremonial volley to officially claim this land for Britain, but then realised that he'd forgotten to bring any gunpowder from the ship. (laughs) So he had to borrow some from the French. Right. Which they thought was hilarious. And then the Royal Marines, being arseholes, deliberately fired their ceremonial volley, worryingly close above the French's heads. The French thought all oh, of this... I some Aboriginals. <laughs> well, oh. No, that, that came later and consistently through, <laughs> through the next two centuries. <laughs> yeah. Bear in mind, the French thought this was absolutely hilarious. They had over 100 men on the island to Robbins's 17, and their ship, the Geographie, was 10 times the size of the Cumberland. Baudin, in a cutting remark, uh, very French told Robbins, do not worry, we never had any intention of colonising a land already inhabited by savages. Oh. Which is about the worst thing that you could say to a Brit. Take that. That's nasty, isn't it? Isn't it? Not very friendly. <laughs> the French response oh, to this mean. was quite hilarious. <laughs> they then left the site of the new colony, which consisted of one flag, a hat with a hole in it from a, from a low-fired bullet and 17 Englishmen, <laughs> yeah. and left and went about annoying the British by naming everything everywhere that they could find on King Island after French things. <laughs> <laughs> this rock, I shall name this French rock. Uh, I shall name this uh, Paris Cove. I shall name this... <laughs> uh, Derriere Point. Uh, this <laughs> yes. one can be... <laughs> and whilst they were doing this... Zidane Cove. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this one... <laughs> uh, there is literally nothing here So I shall name this spot Nothing to lose uh, What else can we call <laughs> Oh very nice As uh, This one can be Bonaparte's bottom um, This one <laughs> yes. yes And so whilst uh, they were doing this And running around filling in their map With good French names for things Grimes the surveyor was literally running along About half an hour behind them Renaming everything after British things Getting very flustered (laughs) (laughs) So 
Oh dear. So they just went around really annoying the British, basically playing a game of British Bulldog in which they were like, tag, this tree's French. Tag, this rock's French. And the British, who were outnumbered five to one, were just running around back. Like, no, no, definitely British. Definitely British. No, no, it's ours. No, leave that. Le- 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 don't touch that. Leave it alone. Leave it. That's ours. No, no, that's no. That's <laughs> Bellamy's bottom, not Bonaparte's bottom. How dare you? I named this bottom after His Majesty the King. <laughs> the French eventually got tired of uh, annoying the British and went off and sailed away and carried on their very successful expedition and eventually sailed uh, sailed home back to Mauritius. <laughs> the The only real repercussion from this was once Boudin had stopped laughing, he did write a letter to King calling him a massive child who needed to take better care of his flags. So actually, that was from this international incident, that was the only the only outcome of it, is the British planted a flag and the French wrote a letter calling them enormous children. <laughs> Which is fairly accurate. But there was another part to this whole affair, Tom, and that was the invasion. The Boudin expedition wasn't just scientific. Oh, no, 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 no. It was a detailed map of the defences and strategic value of Australia and Port Jackson, presented to French authorities in Mauritius uh. and in Paris with a view to capturing or destroying the colony in the long term. Now, there were two reports written up by members of the expedition suggesting an invasion. The most important and detailed one was by a geographer called François-Auguste Perron, who saw Australia as a major threat to Spanish South America, which needed to be crushed. Uh, Spain and France at this point were, were allies. His report wasn't fully discovered or fully translated until 1998. But it's really interesting. And he wrote to the governor of Ile-de-France, which is now Mauritius, that Napoleon himself had sent them up to Australia to draw up invasion plans as part of the expedition. And he wrote in this letter, All of our natural history researches, extolled with so much ostentation by the government of France, were merely a pretext for its enterprise. So really, this whole thing was a spy mission to invade Australia. And he claimed to be quite the... uh, undercover expert himself, writing, I was able to gain the confidence of the governor of Australia, his secretary, the lieutenant, and most of the civil and military officers, the colonial doctors, Protestant ministers, and the nature of my work in my double title of doctor and naturalist made me less suspect and allowed me to ask a mass of questions and walk around naked, sorry, naturalist, not naturist, (laughs) which coming from anyone else would have been badly received. I visited most parts of the colony, the flocks, the countryside. I questioned the farmers to obtain exact information, which may be useful to the interests of my country. So he claimed that he was quite the expert, although he later rolled this back a little bit, saying that actually he was just an interested amateur. You know, because amateurs like to plan invasions. (laughs) But his plan was pretty dastardly. It involved shipping a force of 1,800 French soldiers in a fleet to Australia, sailing a few dozen miles south of major shipping routes to avoid detection. After a six-month voyage, which would have been absolute hell, they would sail around the south of Australia, capturing any British settlements on the way and sinking any ships to avoid alerting authorities. And what their plan was to do was to bring any transported labourers that they came across, especially Irish dissidents, on board to provide intelligence in exchange for freedom. They would then sneak up on Sydney at night near, quote, a malt house belonging to a man named Smith. Not the not the other malt houses. Very specifically, Smith's Malt House. That's, that is very specific, isn't it? Because he makes the best booze, the best wine and brandy. And he thought that once they'd landed, they would be able to march on Sydney completely unopposed. He'd gotten drunk with and talked to quite a lot of the local guards and militia and knew that they had no stomach for a fight. They didn't even want to be in Australia. They would rather be at home and would surrender without bloodshed. 
He also knew that most of the Irish prisoners who'd been transported to Sydney and the colonies hated the British. They were political prisoners. So much so that the French's main job would actually be to avoid a massacre of the colonial masters by the Irish. He really wanted to keep most of the British colonial officers in place because he'd been very impressed with the way that the island was being run. Nevertheless, he also suggested bringing 2,000 extra guns to form an Irish colonial army. The captured British would be shipped home in exchange for French prisoners, political prisoners within Sydney would be released and everyone else would be given shortened sentences to win them over. Most importantly, no one needed to die or very, very few people would need to die. It would all be very, very, very easy. And once the war was over, either France could keep the colony or could return it in negotiations to great French advantage once the France had won the war. However, he made very specific stipulations, which is again where this very much isn't Britain, <laughs> that this would only be allowed so long as the Irish troops were protected and promised safe passage, which is very honourable of him, isn't it? Because the British would usually let let colonial or imperial troops be absolutely dicked on. Too right. Quite right too, yes. And Tom, it very nearly happened. In 1810, Napoleon ordered that Ile de France, or Mauritius, plan for an invasion of New South Wales. And just a few months later, a British ship, the Broxenbury, or the Broxbournebury, sorry, reported seeing, or at least seeing reports of, three or four French frigates, large French warships, heading for Australia. Although bad weather apparently had sunk a couple and dispersed the rest who returned home. Nothing officially was ever written up about this invasion, but it is entirely possible that France, on the basis of these reports, did actually launch an invasion of Australia. It just got beaten by the weather. So who knows, Tom? Maybe, it's just rumour, but maybe, just maybe, Australians could have been eating cane toad or bullfrog legs and speaking with an even worse accent today. We'll never know. Oh, yeah. We will never and so know. What, and so presumably this plan was put aside after the French turned on the Spanish. When was that? 1812? 18... I mean, who knows? Well, if, if France had won the colony, if France had conquered the colony, they could then have used it to invade South America. True. The importance of Australia wasn't just that it was a British colony and it was flying a British flag. It was that it was a good back route to the Spanish gold mines and gold reserves in South America. Very interesting game of strategy there, Sam, that you've you've come across in your research. Indeed. Very interesting. Indeed. So not so much a kick-ass Frenchman as such, but a, an oddly successful mission of exploration. Yes, led by the French. And some British incompetence, led by the French. It's interesting. I, I can't pick out anything silly. So all I can say is interesting. Well, I mean, that's as good a place as any to end. We've done the sausage. (laughs) We've done nudists. Yep, we've done Frenchmen sticking things up their bottoms and silly accents. That's all we need to do. So in that case, we should probably think of something to talk about next week, shouldn't we? Now, what did I thought up? What that's one I thought of. World's firsts. Ooh, yeah. To mark our one-year anniversary, because it's gonna be our fifty-second episode. 52nd proper episode. Yeah. Okay, world firsts. That sounds like a really good one, yeah. Hold on, didn't we... Have we done our shout-outs to people yet? Oh, yes, let's do do some shout-outs before we go. There's Nanan, who chose to do A-level history because he likes cock jokes. Good. (laughs) Yep, so he doesn't understand all the 90s references. I'm assuming it's a bloke, by the way, but probably isn't. I mean, if he's in in university now, he's definitely not going to understand the 90s references. Ask your parents. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you, thank you, Nanan. There was that, he, he gave us some comments. Did we get anything on Facebook as well? What have we had on Facebook? Other than the obvious incredible video of uh, Viagra in the water. <laughs> yeah. From Trina. 
It was instant rigor mortis, what a hard way to die. Save your sons, shield your daughters, there's Viagra in the water. You've got a far better memory than I do. <laughs> we are, of course, talking about Viagra in the water, as teased to us by listener Trinavan Hawkins a few weeks ago. And uh, No, Trina Van Hawkins, Trina, Trina Van changed the name. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you so, so, so much for sending us through the video of that. You have more than earned your That Was Genius mug coming to you after a short delay once I get one more printed. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking we could leave it until next week and then try and do the whole thing. Yes. Well, let's, let's bring it back next week and do the whole song. Yeah, it sounds very good. I think that sounds fair. We need a bit more time to rehearse. We do. I, well, evidently. As... <laughs> it's a long song, isn't it? It is quite a long song. I was expecting a little ditty, but God, it's, it's about five verses. The audience delivers, Tom. The audience delivers. <laughs> Yes, it's nice to take back, isn't it, sometimes? It's nice to listen to our listeners. <laughs> it is nice to take, Tom. It can't all be give, give, give. No, it can't. we can't just it's be exhausting. all charity. It's exhausting. It is. So do do send us some um, audio of you heavily breathing and all sorts of other things. It'd be lovely to hear. Well, I was going to suggest other rude songs that you might know, but yeah, I mean... <laughs> Heavy breathing's fine. Oh, yeah, or, or what about what about playground songs? Because they're funny, because they're rude, and they make no sense either. Yes. Like uh, Batman and Robin in the Batmobile. Batman did a fart and paralysed the wheel. The wheel couldn't take it, the engine fell apart, all because of Superman's supersonic fart. (laughs) I like that one. Makes no sense. (laughs) How about... The Adams family started when Uncle Fester farted. He farted, he farted through, through the, the keyhole key and paralysed the cat. The cat. <laughs> <Doodle-loody>. <laughs> the cat got all excited and shouted, Man United! <laughs> and Man United <laughs> shouted, The Adams family. Very nice. So yes, if you, uh, if you do have any songs, do <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do with them. Put them in a great big collage. <laughs> <laughs> an audio collage yeah. just grain just white noise yeah do, do send a, do send us any recording yeah. oh will they <laughs> put your children to sleep and they'll wake up singing horrendous songs yeah do send us send them to us on the on facebook messenger if you like with that was genius podcast or email us that was geniuscast at gmail.com with your horrendous playground songs oh brilliant I look forward to that <laughs> and audience you can look forward to us trying to learn Viagra in the water next week this is going to require quite a lot of hard work so to speak yeah hello Viagra in the water maybe we should just do a Chaz and Dave version of it alright yeah so next, so what should we do next week so uh, you mentioned um, what did you say? I, 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 let's do spies in a coming week. I think spies is a good one, but I think world first is a great idea. Excellent. In the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, if you have, write us a nice review on your podcasting app of choice. Do get in touch with us. You can find us on Twitter that underscore was underscore genius, Instagram at that was genius, and Facebook that was genius podcast. In the meantime, say goodbye, Tom. Bye. And it's goodbye from me, and we will see you next week.